Thanks for joining me here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. I'm psyched because this episode is brought to us by Bell, above and beyond flight. Explore what they're doing in aviation today at bellflight.com. Now it's time to relaunch part two with my man, Dave Callen. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Dave, so one of the other things that I really like about some of your stories that you've told me is you actually are a survivor of two, two kind of, well, one crash for sure, and then one like, let's call it landing because you had to. Takeoff is optional, landing, mandatory. <laughs> mandatory. So yeah. what, uh, and I, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, like this was not on a search and rescue, this wasn't anything like that. You were out on patrol or trying to help ground units and whatnot, and then an incident happened. And here's the reason I even want to bring this up is because there's a lot of lessons learned. And for those of us that fly, it's good to hear this stuff so that you can relate it when you're in the air the next time. So that's why I'm asking you to bring these up. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, I'm happy to share um, those incidents with you. So yeah, you're right. Both times that happened, it was flying patrol in, in Vegas, just me and another officer uh, that was a TFO or a tactical flight officer doing the police mission. And the first time, um, geez, I don't remember the year. I'd have to look at my logbook. But the first time it happened, I, I had taken off. Uh, it was daytime, and I was training Dave Brooks, actually. He was fairly new to the unit, and Dave wasn't even a pilot yet. He wasn't even in flight training. He was in TFO training, and he was probably, um, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the way through it, something like that. Um, and I was fairly low time in the unit as well as far as experience, um, you know, People generally, you know, in Vegas, unless you have at least a couple thousand hours, you know, it's like, eh, you know, this is a new guy. But um, I don't know. I, I probably had, I don't know, six, seven hundred hours, something like that. Maybe I'd have to look. But um, yeah, just flying daytime patrol and we were bouncing around handling calls for service. And I was in a, a 500 in both of these incidents was in an F model 500. That's what, uh, you know, we flew patrol in and they still do out there. So. Um, the funny thing about this story is my wife, Ashley, is an air traffic controller. And it was kind of common when our kids were very little. We we had to work opposite schedules to make that work. And occasionally we would overlap and I would end up talking to her uh, when she was in the tower. It um, used to be McCarran. Now it's uh, Harry Reid International Airport. Um, but she worked in the tower up there. And they're super busy and there's a helicopter frequency. So when there's all these helicopters, the tours, Canyon guys, all that stuff, they put all the helicopters on one frequency. So she happens to be on helicopter frequency working and I'm talking to my wife, which, you know, that's pretty, that, I mean, talk, probably count on it on one hand, how many people do that. But so I had Brooks yeah. with me and we had just handled a call over the strip. We went West. And one of the things that we would do with the new TFOs is during our downtime, we would quiz them on streets. Cause these guys had to memorize the main, streets and the hundred blocks for those streets for the entire Vegas Valley. So we were just kind of cruising Southwest and just like, you know, turn the computer off, 
So you can't cheat and just ask them, hey, what's this street in Hunter Block? What's this street in Hunter Block? You know, we're just cruising along, asking them some of the smaller ones. So we get um, wow. towards uh, this this intersection of, of uh, Spring Mountain and Jones, which is like southwest part of Vegas. And we're, we're not quite there yet. We're kind of coming up. It. We're, uh, we're straddling this smaller road called Twain. And so everything's fine. We're probably, I don't know, maybe an hour and 15 minutes into this flight. And just cruising along 500 feet above the ground, 60 knots. That was standard patrol altitude and speed for, you know, patrol at the time. And just out of nowhere, um, not accelerating, decelerating, no power changes, nothing. It just rolls to idle. And at the time, I thought it it flamed out. And later on, in hindsight, it did not. We had a governor failure that actually caused the engine to roll all the way down to idle. Which, if you're training and practicing auto rotations, that's how you simulate it. You just chop the throttle to idle, and the thing is not going to fly um, at all. But it's uh, you know when it happens, you really don't know. So you know we're cruising along, and all of a sudden it just it just rolls down. And so I'm like, shit. I didn't say it this time. I didn't say shit. I thought shit, but I didn't say it. But um, so immediately I enter an auto, and we're descending, and we're flying kind of southwest bound and I made an initial right turn of about I don't know 30 degrees and lined up with this road called Twain and I actually got on the radio and there's radio traffic of this too I could upload it to you um yeah, but I, I, yeah. I Mike and I we were flying um Air 5 at the time so I just I don't know how or why I don't even remember doing it but I keyed up the mic and I said to my wife I'm like Tower Metro 5 we're going down <laughs> and that was all I could get out so we line up on Twain and as we're descending, there's some wires in the way. And I'm like, shit, we're going, we're going to pretty much, you know, go right where these wires are. So that's not going to work. So we made another more aggressive 90 degree right turn to line up on a street called Lindell. And that intersection of Twain and Lindell had, it was a, a four-way stop. So there's like these extending light poles with flashing lights, you know, to basically advise everybody it's a, a four-way stop. So we make that turn and um we're descending now north on lindell um and there was a car that was just in front of us and that dude's cruising northbound to the next light which is spring mountain and that street is basically two lanes with a center turn lane with the little you know bot dot center lane divider so as we come down i could hear dave was getting some radio traffic out because he's talking to the police dispatcher and i'm talking to the tower and i you know i'm monitoring i can hear I just hear words because I'm totally overloaded, dude, at this point. And um, I can tell you, it's funny because, you know, in training, um, Metro has an outstanding emergency procedures training. And especially back then, you know, it was it was top notch internally. The guys that would the CFIs would do just absolutely outstanding auto rotation training with us. And then we would go to Western helicopters, which unfortunately went out of business a few years ago, but we would train with those guys annually as well. And they're 500 and they gave, honestly, the guys from Western, um, Pete and Bob gave me the stuff that saved my life in both of these instances. Um, and I've, I've seen them both at HAI over the years. And I've, I've told both of those guys like, Hey, legit, like, thank you for saving my life and me not ending up as a grease stain on a road somewhere because of, you know, the training that you guys gave. Because I mean, you ask anybody, especially in law enforcement, it was pretty common. Anybody that flew a 500 would go to Western and train with those guys. They're absolutely amazing. Um, so, you know, it's funny because you'd like to think 
that if something like that happens, you're just going to be totally calm and cool. And, you know, it's like not going to be a big deal, but especially being lower time, like I'll be honest, I was completely shitting my pants. Um, and the interesting thing is the thing that was so um, overwhelming was uh, trying to find a spot to land a helicopter. And there's a lot of debates over altitudes that you should fly at. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in this now, but you know, we flew at 500 feet and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not illegal. It's not, you know, bad, but the, the downside, you know, to flying lower is you make more noise. Um, and you know, the community tends to not appreciate that, especially from law enforcement helicopters. Um, but then, you know, your, your, uh, time in order to descend, to make a good auto, it's, I mean, it rapidly is reduced at those altitudes. So, you know, at 500 feet, you're talking maybe, you know, 12, 15 seconds from the time that you would have an engine flare to the time you're on the ground. That's not a lot of time. No. And if you're over a bad spot, you know, your glide distance is, is also minimal. So your ability, you know, the, as you get to lower altitudes, this kind of cone or area, if you want to think of it like that, that you could even physically get the aircraft to a point on the ground it just tightens up and tightens up and tightens up as you go lower. So, um, you know, for us, I just remember being in a panic thinking, holy shit, like I've got to find a place to put this thing on the ground, uh, you know, and then managing your rotor RPM and all that stuff, which that was another thing in the F model 500. When uh, the engine rolls to idle, the rotor RPM would degrade um, more rapidly than like the D or the E models. And I, I'd done my initial training in a D and I'd done a ton of autos in the F, but you know, it's training in the F it's not a big deal. But in real life, you know, especially with that lag time um, in both of these instances, I mean, I got the collective down in the cyclic back pretty quickly and the rotor RPM had gone pretty much about to the bottom of the green and it didn't go any lower. It stayed there, but then it slowly started to build back up, which is normal in that helicopter. But it's just it just sucks. You know, it is what it is. So all this maneuvering, eventually we make this aggressive right hand turn again. We just barely are going to kind of come past those four-way flasher poles and then there was a car in front of us that dude that was cruising northbound um he just continued on and i laughed to this day because i know that dude probably had no idea that a helicopter came down behind him now it wasn't like we were right on his bumper or anything but you know still he was probably i don't know maybe 75 yards ahead of us maybe a little bit more um, hard to say at this point but you know he's cruising along never saw us like went through the green light at spring mountain kept on going but we, we ended up touching down in that center lane and um, did, a, a honestly, a pretty decent auto, um, slid 110 feet, came to a stop. And the only damage to the aircraft was from the skids doing this over those, you know, center turn lane divider bot dot things. It just vibrated the um, the position lens cover on one of the skids just popped off. And that was it. And. The crazy thing was nice. when uh, we we came to a stop, um, you know, and realized, holy shit, we're okay. The first thing I realized was the engine's still running, but it's at idle. And, you know, the throttle is twisted fully to flight. But, I mean, it is all the way down at, like, 64%. It is it is legit at idle. And um, so I remember just totally confused. I'm like, I have no idea what's happening right now. And Dave. I gave him shit to this day because I swear to God, I feel like we didn't even stop. And that dude was already out of the helicopter, which I don't blame him, but you know, he jumps out and uh, 
he's on the radio. And, uh, so I, I'm in the process, like, shit, I just got to shut this thing down. So I just, I shut it down. Um, didn't do the cool down anything. Just like, I just want to get out of this thing, shut it down. And the interesting thing with that was Dave had, had called out where he called it out. He gave good radio traffic, but he was looking off in the distance at the main intersection of spring mountain and Jones. And this is a teachable moment for anybody that's teaching law enforcement aviation. So Dave had never been in the helicopter for an auto rotation to that point. We had never given any of our TFOs that experience. And then in hindsight, we realized that's pretty stupid. These guys need to see what an auto is like. So in his experience, he had only ever flown airplanes. He had a private pilot's license, but he got it in an airplane. And well, an airplane glides a lot better than a helicopter. So we always talked about autos and like, you're going to call this radio traffic out. And this is what you're going to say. And he did a phenomenal job of that. However, he was looking like a quarter mile away at that intersection. So he tells our dispatcher, he's like, control air four, you know, or he had said, um, he's, yeah, he says air four, even though we were flying in air five. That was another thing that we realized is that Dave had been on nights for a while and he had been flying in air four all the time. So he was just used to keying up the mic and saying air four. So he said the wrong aircraft call sign, which it's not a big deal. We're the only ones flying patrol and they figured it out. But then he was looking a quarter mile away, and that's where he said we were going to be. And that wasn't anywhere close to where we were going to get to, but that's where he was looking. And in his mind, like, we're going to glide there. And um, we just realized for training that we had some stuff that we could probably clean up with the TFOs with, with doing EPs. Um, and then when, we, when he got out, he said, uh, for, again, this is just good for, for TFOs. He jumps out and we're on Lindell and then there's this tiny little residential street called Solvang and nobody knows where the hell Solvang is, you know, and in hindsight, he's like, we're going to be at Lindell and Solvang and she, you know, the dispatch is like, what, you know, what is it? She's trying to type that in to get it to verify so everybody can come our way. And, you know, again, when we debriefed it, we're like, you know, a better thing would have been to say, we're going to be on Lindell South of Spring Mountain. Everybody's like, I know exactly where that's at. Those are major streets, you know? So again, yeah, like yeah. for guys teaching TFOs, like, you know, tell them, hey, give give us a reference in regards to something that the officers know and they can find it. Because if you go to Lindell South of Spring Mountain, you're going to find us. We're sitting in the street, you know? So <laughs> that was kind of funny. And then one of our deputy chiefs at the time, who's uh, you know up there in rank on on the agency, was actually sitting at the intersection of Spring Mountain and Jones and heard the radio traffic, and he's watching us descend. So he was like the second dude to arrive. Um, oh, wow. But the biggest moral of this story is, we get out and everybody you know descends upon the scene here. We're okay, nobody's hurt or anything. Um, a little freaked out, but they get the scene all secure. They shut the roads down, everything, and. I'm just getting bombarded with phone calls from the hangar. You know, the lieutenant's coming out, maintenance supervisor's coming out, my sergeant's coming out, everybody's coming out. And the one thing I didn't do was call my wife. So you know, she, the last communication I had with her was she's on the frequency and I tell her that we're going down. So now I'm just overwhelmed. This just happened to me and it was a lot of process. And all these people are coming up to me, asking me a million questions. When the first thing for anybody out there, especially husbands, call your wife. Okay. Call your wife, put everybody else on hold, call your damn wife. So I didn't call her. So she didn't know for like 25 minutes if we were okay. And they actually sent uh so she had to get relieved on position. She tells her supervisor, she's like, Dave just went down in air five and I dropped off the radar scope. And it's, it's funny in hindsight, because when you listen to the radio traffic, I said that 
and then there's like a pause and then somebody else keys up like one of the canyon helicopters and then she's like you know hey silverado so-and-so do you see a metro helicopter off your right she's like kind of annoyed almost you know like what and then we drop off the radar scope and then he goes uh negative and then it's like silence and then another person keys up and she has to respond and now she's like crying as she's talking because she has to talk to the helicopter she's the only controller on the frequency then she tells her supervisor and that guy's like shit i gotta get her off frequency so he comes over and plugs in and on the, the recording we have they have to basically do a quick briefing so if like you know i relieve you and you're up there in the tower you plug in or I plug in and then you're like, Hey, you know, I got this, 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 this guy's crossing this runway. I got him on short final. I got, here's the situation report. And then you're like, all right, Roger that. I got it. You got it. I got it. Okay. And then, you know, other person unplugs and then that's it. So she's crying while she's giving him this quick briefing on this, on like the sit rep, if you will. And then they get her off position and then they're just trying to get her to the scene. And then meanwhile, that dude sends a tour helicopter from our last known position on the radar scope, because they're just trying to figure out if we're okay, you know? So he sends one of the tour helicopters out there with a bunch of passengers in the back, and he eventually finds us. He's getting, like, vectors, you know, to where you know, we, they thought we were. So eventually he finds us, and he's like, yeah, I can see it. Like, they're it's, it's sitting upright. They're walking around. You know, looks like they made a safe landing or whatever. So they finally get her to the scene, and uh, she's, like, you know, happy but, like, pissed, too, at the same time. And I realized, I was like, damn, that was, I really dropped the ball on that one, man. Like, I should have called my damn wife and told her that I was okay. So, extreme you know, ownership I, again. Yeah, extreme <laughs> ownership. Yeah, it's, oh, it all comes always down to extreme ownership. It's my fault. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, we learned all these lessons with that, with TFO stuff, with calling your wife. And uh, long story short, we're all okay. Like, everything was okay. Uh, we on a visual, one nine or left. Allegiant 419 Las Vegas, I reduced your final approach speed, wind 110 at 13, runway 19 or left, clear to land, plan to roll along and exit Alpha. 19 or left and uh, clear to land, we'll plan on Alpha, Allegiant 419. Happy on 38 with you at the view. Happy on 38 Las Vegas, wind 110 at 13, proceed your request to use caution. Vegas Tower, Puppy on 38, not sure if that was for me, at the view for the call bill. Silverado 77, do you see Metro Helicopter off your right? Uh, negative, 77. Las Vegas Tower, Puppy on 38. Puppy on 38, Las Vegas Tower, 11011, please request to use caution. Please request to use caution, Puppy on 38. I mean, you just show me the traffic. Five, so I traffic Legion 419 roll, and I tell the roll along to Alpha, and then that's the last landmark just checked in. Happy on 38 was the last one that checked in. I got it. AC. That's our landmark 61 checking in Callville, love view 3000. I'll say it's our landmark 50 is with you on the Callville arrival 3000. Silver out of 76, need you to go look for a helicopter for me. Can you do that? Can you fly heading 230, and it's about three miles. Metro says he went down in that area. Affirmative, uh, several seven six, turn to two three zero. Thank you. Las Vegas Tower, Landmark five zero with you on the Callville Railway three thousand. Everybody on my frequency one one eight point seven five, please. Las Vegas Tower, Landmark six eight, checking in Callville three thousand. Landmark six eight, Las Vegas Tower, Landmark will be at your own risk. Landmark six eight.
Sir, at a 76, a little further south, uh, about a 210 heading from there. Roger that, 210. Landmark 5 Tower landing will be turned around. Landmark 5 That's our Allegiant 419 taxi with you. Allegiant 419. Las Vegas Air, say again. Do you want us to taxi with you or switch to 19 Oh, change the other tower, 19 9. Go to the other tower. Sir, at a 76, about a 180 heading. Hey, and I think it's about two miles, somewhere in there. Hey, Roger, do you know where the major cross street I have no idea. Hey, Roger. Any uh, luck out there, sir, Roger 76? Uh, none at the moment. Was it in this area on that now? We think it's in, in that general area, maybe about uh, anywhere from your 12 to 1 o'clock at about a mile and a half. Hey, Roger, that'll kind of make a big orbit around here, see if I can pause up it. Thank you. Sir, Roger 76, I heard it was uh, D.I.N. Jones. Get a mobile thing. Back to 781 with you for 1-9 left. Back to 781 Las Vegas Terra Runway. 1-9 left, third to land, wind 1304. Third to land, 1-9 left, back to 781. Okay, any other helicopters I haven't talked to yet? Any luck yet, Silver Out of 76? Uh, negative contact, Silver. Yeah, well, D.I.N. Jones is the latest I got. Oh, Roger that, D.I.N. Jones. Okay, any other helicopters? You want me to climb your route or you want me to wait? For three. Uh, for three? Um, why don't why don't you just wait for these guys to land? I got silver out of seventy six, and then I'll give it to you. Hey, Rock. Yeah, I'm off your own. Thanks, sir. Okay. Hey, tower seven seven six. I got a visual on that special helicopter. Okay, are they walking around it? Are you skipped up? Uh, I'm gonna get a little bit closer. Look, they got the. I see they got metro out here. Uh, quarantining off the, the area. They got all the, the streets blocked off. Okay, the controller working the position. Her husband was flying it. Can you give us info as soon as you get it? I put them on orbiting directly above them. Uh, they're out there walking around. They're, they're skids up. It doesn't look like the helicopter's damage. looks like they landed safely. Great. Las Vegas Tower, sailing the South U.S. Charlie Eagle Ramp for Trump. Uh, for the Trump, stand by just a moment. Give me two minutes. Roger that. So, fast forward now um, a few years. This is right before I tested for Sergeant the second time. So, it's, it was New Year's Eve. Um, 2014 and i was working day shift and new year's eve in las vegas for metro is probably the busiest day of the year because you know you've got 300 plus thousand people that go down to the las vegas strip they start planning like literally on january 2nd they start planning for that new year's eve it's such a big event and everybody has to work the whole department works on new year's eve because of it most of the officers and even detectives have to put on uniform they have to work the strip it's it's just a massive undertaking for the department so wow that day um, I was one of a handful of officers in the air unit that were um, going to work day shift to cover patrol all day. So we had been sitting around and the weather was really bad. It was like a big cold front came through the area, um, pretty high winds, really low temperatures and just bad weather in general. So the helicopter we were going to fly, um, which was another 500, it was Air 2 at the time, it had just been getting wrapped up for a 100 hour inspection. So all the mechanics are in there finishing up this hundred hour. And when we came in in the morning, we realized, okay, like weather's really, really bad, but it's supposed to improve. So we're probably not going to fly the first half of the day. And yeah, I don't know, four or five of us kind of in the pilot's office, hanging out, um, doing whatever. And then it got to be about lunchtime. So we go grab lunch, we come back. And then at the end of lunch, checking the weather and it's actually improved. It's, it's kind of windy still, but it's not bad. It's just cold. So, um, the mechanics come in and they're like, Hey, the hundred hours done on here too. 
uh, we're gonna go ahead and pull it out. We're just like signing the books and doing everything now. So you guys want to come free fly? So we all go out there. We pre flight the helicopter, give it a really good look, and drag it out. Come back in the pilot's office and I'm like, man, I'm I'm I get cabin fever, dude. I want to go fly patrol. So talking to everybody in there, and Paul Orenko is another phenomenal pilot in the unit. He's since retired, but he's a CFI. Um, Paul had come up one slot before me, so he'd been in the unit um, maybe a year longer than I had. Really, really good dude, um, and, and and a really outstanding cop and TFO, but a very experienced CFI also. So Paul's like, you want to go fly? I'm like, hell yeah, man, let's go fly. And it was one of those things where, like with the experienced guys, we always tried to TFO as much as we flew. And that's another thing for guys in law enforcement. If you work in an organization that you are a dual trained pilot and TFO, a lot of agencies don't. It's like you're a TFO or you're a pilot. But in some places like Vegas, it's both. I can't tell you how important it is for you to TFO as much as you fly, especially once you promote. When you become a sergeant, you don't have to TFO anymore. And some people look at that like, oh, you know, I'm going to fly, but I'm not going to TFO. No, man, get your ass in there and TFO. Because for one, when you don't do it, you start to suck at it. And for two, like, again, that's the equivalent of like, you know, when you're when you're the guy in charge and you're not afraid to take the trash out and sweep the floors. The TFO job should be why you're in law enforcement aviation, not to be the pilot. Because all the exciting stuff happens when the TFO is on a hot call. When you're chasing somebody or there's like a major incident, you don't want to be the pilot. You want to be the TFO that's handling the call. So just like, that's all my advice when it comes to that stuff. But so Paul and I, you know, it's like, Hey man, you want to fly? Do you want to fly? You want to fly? I'm like, I don't care, dude. Like I'll TFO, I'll T you know, we're going back and forth. And Paul was like really big on it. Like, he loved to TFO and he was absolutely outstanding at it, man. He would catch people all the time. So he's like, I'll TFO, man, you fly. I'm like, okay, whatever. That's cool. So we jump in the helicopter, we take off, and we immediately get this call over downtown Las Vegas in an apartment complex, and it was a dude chasing a female with a knife in the in the apartment complex somewhere outside. <laughs> so we had to take off, start hauling ass that way. He's getting information, you know, and I gotta get frequency change from you know North Las Vegas to McCarran, like switch over to them. Like, so we're doing all that, you know, and again, like we've been in the unit a long time, so we're like we worked together for a long number of years. So we're just banging this out. So we we roll into this apartment complex, you know, pretty pretty initially like we're hauling ass. And a lot of times, like, especially in the five hundred, the five hundred is like a race car, right? So if there was like say a cop in a fight or something like that, we would like roll in aggressively, like really, really aggressively and make a ton of noise and get right on top of those guys and let them know like, Hey, we are here. It's like a show of force. And then, you know, we're right on top of it and we can try to, you know, help direct traffic and call out, you know, what's going on. But in this case, because we didn't know where the guy was, um, I told Paul like, Hey, on this entry, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you a wide orbit of the whole complex. So it wasn't even an aggressive entry into this orbit. So we, you know, we come in there, start slowing down. I roll into this gentle turn and I'm trying to keep it kind of flat so he can see. And at the time back then, we didn't have like the really good camera systems. We had a, a camera, like a FLIR or an infrared camera um, that we used at night. Uh, but the day shift guys generally didn't have a camera. So we didn't have a camera on the helicopter. So it was all with stabilized binoculars. So that was like old school how we used to do it. So you know, we roll into this call and he's trying to find the building number. You know, he's given the building number. Hey, last seen chasing the female near building 18 or whatever. So I'm like, my job is just keep it low, wide and flat or, you know, wide and flat, not low, but we're at 500 feet and he's looking for the building number. He's trying to find where these guys, this dude's chasing this lady. So in the first half of the orbit, I could hear the rotor RPM degrade slightly. Now, keeping in mind, I'm a little more hypersensitive to changes in the engine from, you know, the previous incident, which was yeah, years, yeah, yeah. Before, you know, 
but I would, I would never say that I was like scared or anything like that, but I'm just like, I pay attention to that shit. You know what I mean? So we're in this orbit and I can hear the rotor RPM just slightly degrade. And it was the weirdest thing because it wasn't a lot, but I looked down and in the 500, it doesn't have FADEC, uh, which is like the digital engine control um, where basically like a computer is helping you manage uh, the engine and its parameters. Um, it's all done with like what they call PC airlines, which is just bleed air from the compressor between a fuel controller and a governor talking to each other to uh, keep the engine at the correct speed, which is, you know, like a hundred percent for the folks that don't fly. So like when you take off, you roll that thing up to a hundred percent, you can set it and manually adjust it with this little switch that we call the inker dinker because it says increase decrease. So, you know, you might have to adjust it 1% either way, but you want it right at the top of the green at a hundred percent. So, and you check it before you take off, which we did. So we fly in there and I hear this thing degrade. And I look down in the rotor RPM and the the N2 section on the engine have gone from 100 to like 98. And I'm like, well, that's weird. So I go to beep it up a couple times to put it back at, at 100 and it just sits there. It doesn't, it doesn't drop, but it just sits there. It's just like frozen at, at 98 or so. So just as we're coming to where we've done one orbit, of this apartment complex, I roll out of the turn and I flew north for just a second. And I had um, Eastern Boulevard, which is a, a pretty main road in that part of town, out Paul's right door. And I just started this gentle left turn towards North Las Vegas Airport, which is kind of like at our maybe 10 o'clock. And I told Paul, I said, Hey, man, I got an issue with the governor. I'm going to take it back to North Las Vegas. And he, you know, he's like, Roger that. And I wasn't concerned. I'm like, whatever, it's at 98%, not a big deal. It's just whatever's going on, it's just going to be stuck there. So we'll just fly it back. So we just started this little turn and he had just said, okay, you know, whatever. And then it, it quits just poof, like brrr, it just spools down. And so immediately in my mind, we're in this left turn. And so I enter the auto and I immediately, I go back to years before where that happened, where it was the fuel controller. And I don't know that it would have made a difference. It sounds like when they found what was broken in the fuel controller, it wouldn't have, but I'm like, I'm just going to beep this thing back up to hundred percent. So like I'm mashing on this anchor dinker switch, trying to get it to come back alive. And it ain't. And I did that maybe for a second or two and it's, it's not, it's spooling all the way down. And so um, now we're in this left turn and we're descending and um, that part of town. Another interesting thing that, that I learned was the older parts of, of a city generally have a lot more power lines because Neighborhoods that were built, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, it wasn't as common for residences to have underground power lines installed. So like the newer sections, the newer parts of, of the town, a lot of times you'll see on a main road, you'll see, you know, like those 75 or, you know, super tall main power lines. And then, you know, you know, everything is kind of underground at that point in the neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, but in the older neighborhoods, you don't, man, you just see those small wires that are just, you know, down streets and across alleys and that stuff. And that's kind of where we were kind of in the old, older downtown part of Vegas. So we make this initial left turn and kind of roll out for a second. And we're on a, lined up on a small residential street and there's just like cars and kids and people like everywhere. Like it looked, if I remember right, it was like a bunch of kids like playing soccer in the street, even though it was freaking cold, but just, you know, there's a lot of people out, a lot of kids and just activity. And I'm like, that's not going to work. So lay it over hard again to the left and line up on basically now we've descended to the point where there's really no other options. We're kind of committed. And there was one street um, kind of out in, in front of us. And then there was another, and it was a small residential street. And then 
there was another one just to the left of that. And those are really the only two places we could go at this point. And I can remember Paul on the radio talking, giving out radio traffic. And um, the area that we had to land was worse, much worse than that previous auto. Um, it just sucked. It just, it, it was what it was. But um, so I couldn't even hear, even though the radio was monitoring it, I couldn't even tell you what he was saying. I could just hear like, you know, words being said, because I'm just totally loaded up at this point. And again, like the most stressful thing was trying to find a place to land, like literally being like, you know, kind of in a panic almost like just, we got to like, we're, we don't have a lot of time. There's not a lot of good spots to land. So after that second turn, we're descending, I could see that that, that final street that we're committed to, which I think it was uh, 21st street, if I remember right. Um, we were descending and there was a, that street kind of started and we weren't quite going to get to where the street started. And then there was a row of houses that were perpendicular to it and perpendicular to our flight path. And between those row of houses, there was like a dirt alley that separated them with some, some like mid-sized power lines. And like, had we not done any more maneuvering and just kind of let the descent happen on its own, that's where we were going to end up. It's probably clipping the top of those wires and, and hitting a house like right there. Um, so, and the other thing too, is that again, you know, in that 500 with that, just half a second of, um, you know, re reaction time, I wouldn't even call it, um, delayed, but it's just, you know, it's human reaction time to react to the fact that the engine just flamed out. Same thing, you know, rotor RPM is down near the bottom of the green and kind of hanging there. And it's, you know, just very, very, very slowly starting to creep its way back up, but you know, you can hear it. And Another thing that's interesting is in the, both of these situations, something that you don't normally get in training is like the actual indications of an engine failure. And what I mean by that is like, you know, potential, depending on the aircraft you're flying, you know, lights flashing or like the audible in your ears. In the 500, it's pretty, it's pretty fucking loud, but it's just like beep, 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 beep. And it's, you know, I don't know, I almost feel, I understand why it's so loud, but you know, like feedback to MD, maybe you guys can back that off about 40% because it's just like... <laughs> obvious what's happening you know and that's just like sensory overload but you know there's a lot going on and so i i realized like okay even though i don't really want to soak up some rotor rpm i'm gonna have to pull some collective to maneuver over these wires and clear that house and try to get on this just small road and then the shit thing was um there was another uh single wire that was strung across kind of that area. So there was kind of a pocket, a small pocket where we had to clear a big set and then try to not fly into a single one that in my, in my mind at the time, it looked like it was perpendicular to that, that small street. And it actually was not, it was actually diagonal, like 45 across it. But it just, when I saw it, I'm like, shit, there's another single one. I can't hit that one either. So um, just kind of dragged the rotor down a little bit more again, cleared that one set. And then as we were coming up on the next one, just lowered it back again all the way, tried to slow down a bit to get some of it back. Cause I knew we had really low rotor RPM and for the, the non-pilots that, that don't know a whole lot about auto rotation, just a simple explanation of it is that, you know, when you're a normal flight powered flight, the engine is driving the transmission. There's a clutch that, um, you know, basically operates similar to like if you're pedaling a mountain bike and if the engine stops driving the transmission, similar to you stopping pedaling the mountain bike at any time, that clutch engages and it allows it to freewheel. So like on your mountain bike, you can just coast and the pedals not being turned does not stop the wheels from turning. 
Same thing in the helicopter. The dis the the clutch disengages the rotor system immediately from the engine. Well, you also have to lower the collective all the way, which flattens the pitch on the blades to to pretty much you know basically zero if you want to just arbitrarily call it that. And then as you're descending, that air coming up through the bottom of the rotor system turns the rotor system and helps you keep the RPM. So you're basically trading. You know your descent is what's allowing the blades to continue to turn into. The analogy everybody gives is like when you blow in a pinwheel, kind of the same yeah. concept, right? But what happens is in order to extend your glide or to slow your descent, you have to pull some collective and increase the pitch. Whenever you do that, it absorbs rotor RPM. And, you know, in a normal auto in training, you know, you can turn, you can pedal turn, you can speed up, slow down, you can pull collective. You just have to stay within this arc of the green because if you go outside of that um, beyond a certain point, basically, you know, the helicopter stops flying and you can't get the RPM back. So that's just, that's one of the challenges doing autos. But in my mind, I could already hear the rotor RPM was low. I'm like, shit, I really don't want to pull more <laughs> collective, but we can't hit these wires. So we maneuver over them coming up on the next set, dump the collective, come back a little bit, which gave us a little burst of rotor RPM to try to get some back. And then we descended into this kind of pocket of wires. And as we came down through probably, I don't know, 50 ish feet, um, like came aft to basically flare. And at the very bottom of that maneuver, you, you bring the nose up, you flare the helicopter and it reduces your forward speed. It helps build some rotor RPM and it prepares you to be able to just make one final cushion of the landing. And ideally, like you bring the nose up, you do that, you kind of hold it. And then as you get lower, 10, 15 feet ish, you want to push the nose flat so that the skids are level with the ground. And then um, as you make that last bit of descent, you just keep pulling collective and whatever rotor RPM is left, you use that to cushion the landing. Well, we had, we didn't have a lot of rotor RPM. So like I remember coming aft and the nose comes up and we kind of hung there for a second. And we were also slightly downwind. That was another thing that didn't help. But oh, okay. yeah. I pulled I pulled collective to kind of, you know, try to stop us and like I normally would to finish that maneuver and uh it just like went right to the stop and that was it <laughs> like i remember again thinking in my head i was like shit like we're still probably 30 feet off the ground and so you know that's it like it's it's pretty much done flying so i i pushed forward completely like to try to get the disc level and i remember it was just kind of like it's the weirdest thing like if you know normally you don't hear the engine is pr pretty much quiet at that point and the RPM is like so low. It's just like, like guys that fly, especially in, a, you know, just done lots of autos, like you hear it, you know, and it's, it's kind of creepy when it's at its lowest, but it's like even lower than that. So it's just kind of like, it's just low. And so I push forward to try to get us flat and it's just kind of shuddering and the nose starts to come down, but it was done at that point. It just stopped flying. <laughs> so maybe 20, 25 feet, we just fall tail first. Thank God we did not quite get to that that wire, the next one. But we descended tail first like that. The tail hit, and um, then it kind of whipped the rest of us flat. And um, the impact sheared the tail boom off. And then we hit, split the skids. And then actually as we slid, that one I think we slid like 98 feet. And then we rotated to the right around almost 180 degrees. Not quite 180 degrees, but... Um, significant impact and the one of the main rotor blades actually departed the head and went down the road and was bent like 90 degrees the tail section went flying and ended up in this this guy's yard took out a section of his iron fence 
And um, interestingly enough, there was a there was a uh, a guy who lived there, a family that lived there, and the son was vacuuming out his car, and he had some headphones on. He's listening to music and he's vacuuming his car, and I guess he had the music cranked up and he couldn't hear it. But you know, here comes our tail section, bang, takes out the fence, like goes right by him and ends up in the yard. And he has no idea. He's just like jamming away, vacuuming his car. No idea. And then, you know, we go sliding past him, doesn't see anything. And then there was two citizens sitting in a U-Haul truck parked next to a dumpster on the other side of the street. And this is a small street. Like, I'll, I'll send you some pictures of it. There's not a lot of room. Yeah, please do. And we slid basically right up to where those guys were. Like, they ended up diving for cover in the in the U-Haul. And we ended up stopped right next to that dumpster. And then the the father of the guy vacuuming his car, you know, heard something and he opens the door. Apparently like we read a bunch of statements on it, you know, after the fact. And, you know, we, he's like, Hey, you know, he points to the helicopter crash and the guy just like, you know, looks over and is like, Holy shit. Like where did that come from? You know? But, um, oh my God. it was, it was a, the thing that stood out the most for me was the impact. Like it was a significant impact. It was, it was brutal. Um, and, as soon as we hit the ground, um, I just remember feeling like massively intense pain in my back and a couple seconds of kind of nothing. Um, in hindsight, realized that kind of, I don't know, I guess the impact just kind of knocked, I, I guess lost consciousness for a second or two. Um, cause I just came to sitting in the thing. And again, like now I'm sitting there, I'm in like horrendous pain. I ended up breaking, uh, I had compression fractures in my lower back L1 and L2. And then I ended up with a fracture in my, um, my arm right here too, which I didn't find out until days later, but you know, I pulled the collective up and my arm was like this. And then it came down and slammed into the, to the metal frame um, at the base where the collective goes into the airframe. Um, and then I had actually, because my feet were on the pedals and you know, my body was isolated since I was flying, we hit so hard that I actually snapped the pedals off, like literally broke the aluminum that connected the pedals to the, the like push control rods snapped them off oh my god and uh yeah thank god didn't you know, break my legs or my ankles but my back took the brunt of the damage and so now we're sitting there i kind of come to and same thing like you know the system and the, the helicopter is just like beep 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 you know it's going crazy and paul gets out and he he actually had a um like a small fracture in part of the vertebrae of his neck um, but he gets out, man, comes around, opens the door and he, he actually says on the radio, you can hear it on the radio traffic. He's like, get out, Dave, dude, I was done. I was in so much pain. I could not get out of that thing on my own. My back hurt so bad. So he comes around, he opens the door and he's like, get out. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't move. So dude, total stud. He, um, takes, takes my harness off, helps pull me out, carries me over to the sidewalk and lays me down on my back. And People are starting to come out and he's like shooing them away. And like, I, I remember kind of looking up and I, cause you could hear the helicopter, um, you know, it, the system knew that the engine had failed and it legit failed this time. So the auto reignition system had kicked on and was trying to reignite the engine. So there's these, there's two igniters in the F model and they're firing. So like, I could hear it, like we could smell fuel and we could hear the igniters just like firing. We're not that far away from it. And Paul realized, he's like, shit, like this thing could catch on fire. So he gets back up, he runs over there, pulls the emergency fuel shut off, shuts the master battery off, yells at some more people to get away, comes back over and he crouches down next to me. And uh, it's kind of funny, like in now, 
we've laughed about it a lot, but I remember like, I just kind of looked up and I was, dude, I was in so much pain and like, it's freezing. And I legitimately learned what it means to go into shock because I was so cold anyway, but I just started like jackhammering, shivering, man. I was like just in pain. It was frigging cold, but I looked up and you could hear sirens and Paul's like kind of crouched down next to me. And I go, dude, the helicopter's completely destroyed. I swear to God, my back is broken. Like, how the fuck are you up walking around right now talking to people? And I think it just finally like sunk in to Paul because he literally just kind of like leaned over <laughs> and he kind of groaned. He's just like, Ugh. he just like leans over. And there we are, dude. I'm on the sidewalk. He's in the gutter. And that's it. Oh and my God. So the, and the kind of, sad thing about it was um nobody came to help us and we're not not the greatest part of town and i now being much older and maybe a little bit wiser i'd i'd like to think that it was just because people were just overwhelmed and they had no idea what to do but uh nobody came up and even was like hey (laughs) are you okay like nothing dude it was just pawing me in the street and people were calling in you know um 901 but um, the radio traffic is, is pretty interesting to listen to now because it took them a little while to find us. Even with Paul gave outstanding radio traffic. I mean, the most calm and I'll send that to you too. It's amazing. It still to this day amazes me how calm he was when he just calls out. He's like, Hey, control, you know, air two, uh, you know, four forty four, which is like our call for like, that's the worst call to hear on the radio. It's basically an officer needs help emergency. Yeah. Um, and he's like, hey, you know, we're going to be making a mercy landing at, uh, we're going to be at, you know, this and this and uh, go ahead and, you know, roll medical and then bang, we hit the ground. And it was so calm. And like the joke I've said a million times is that that day, you know, we were trying to decide who's going to go fly. You know, and it's like, you want to fly? You want to fly? Oh, I'll fly, whatever. And so I've always told Paul and everybody else, I said, hey, if Paul would have been flying and um, I would have been the TFO, like a, the landing might have been better. But the radio traffic would have been way worse, man. If I was, yeah, it would have not have been as good as Paul. Paul was just like so calm and just dialed, man. But um, he did such a good job. And then he gets me out. And like that, that dude is like a, a true hero in my mind because he just was chill. And you don't know how people are going to react when shit really goes downhill. You just don't know how you're going to react. And I mean, he was just totally calm and a stud. So um, anyway, they ended up finding us and uh, they, uh, they, like first cop pulls down the street and even you can tell that guy's pretty overwhelmed. So I realized like going back to the first one, I'm like, shit, I need to call my wife. Right. So I'm like, oh, I to get my flight suit. I pull my phone out and now people are starting to show up. Like the first cop shows up and you know, that dude's just like, man, I'm not, they didn't train me for this. Like active shooter, like, you know, robbery, vehicle pursuits, like fights. I'm good. But like helicopter crashes where our own dudes are messed up. Ah, I didn't get trained for that. So he's just kind of like, you know, they're all trying to figure it out. They're shutting down the streets, but I pull my phone out and I call, I call Ashley and we, we now have two little kids. Uh, we, we have two girls at the time and they're like one and, you know, two, basically two, one and three, basically they're just very little. And so she's trying to get him to go to sleep for a nap. And so I call, she answers the phone 
And right away, you know, she doesn't know we're flying. She picks up the phone, doesn't even say hello. She's just like, hey, can I call you back? Like, I'm trying to get the girls to go down for a nap. And like, they're not cooperating. They're being a real pain. And just like, you know, she's going on and on. And finally, I'm like, just crash an helicopter. And, you know, like, uh, we're in the street or something like that. And then the call dropped. And that was it. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like beep 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 i'm like shit the call dropped and then at that point somebody comes up grabs myself like the the medics start to show up the vegas fd guys they're like give me that they're like take his gun away that's the first thing they do when a cop's hurt is like get the gun away from him so he doesn't go nuts and you know pull it out so like they they take my phone they take my gun they're just like trying to package me i'm just like oh my god i'm like Dude, somebody's gonna call my wife back and tell her what happened. And I'm okay, that's twice. Like at least they called her. But um, yeah, they uh, they they ended up and uh, my neighbor uh, Brian at the time lived two doors down, and he was a SWAT officer at the time. Super solid dude. They knew because everybody's working. They heard the broadcast. You know, go out area wide like the whole department like that hey you know air unit just went down there's a 444 i'm downtown so he was at home getting ready to go to work and he like literally ran right over to our house and my wife was calling somebody to come watch the kids and as soon as that person showed up our friend nikki to watch our girls um actually jumped in the, in the truck with brian and he rolled you know code all the way to the hospital um so she knew and then you know, she calls the hangar to try to get an update and they're like, we don't know. We just know that they're, they're being transported. Like, you know, like they really didn't have any info, but thank God, like, you know, we were hurt. Um, but, uh, able to go back to work. I think Paul and I are both out for six months and then, um, got healed up and went back to work, flew for a bit. And then that was when I was studying for the second sergeant's test. Um, once I was able to, and wasn't, you know, sitting home on pain pills, just trying to survive with broken back. But, uh, yeah, interesting, man. So, you know, it's like, dude, I don't know. I'm either the luckiest or the unluckiest guy that you're going to fly with. I, I feel like the luckiest cause you know, I, those I'm were going luckiest. incidents, you know, thank God didn't vapor lock and just, you know, put it into the back of that guy's house. But, uh, yeah, in my mind still, Paul is the real hero in that incident because, he was just so calm, you know. I was definitely on the inside; did not feel calm. <laughs> yeah, well, I called, but I called my wife, so that's a win. Well done, sir. I, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, 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 you've told me that story at least twice, and it, every time I'm blown away. It's just it, mind blowing to me. Well done. Like, well, it. I tell you what, man. If nothing else, <laughs> it's just to me. It shows the value of of good training. Really, that's all it comes down to. It would, to me, it wouldn't matter which one of our pilots would have been flying that day. The outcome would have been the same. They would have made a better landing probably than I did, um, even with the crappy area that we had to land. But that's just a credit to the training. You know, if you, if you have good training, man, that's, you know, everybody says it, but that's what you're going to fall back to. And anytime it's overwhelmingly stressful, whatever the situations that you're put in, you kind of have to operate on autopilot. So you do, you go back to whatever your foundation of training was. and. Thank God that's what happened to me. But that goes back to how I was trained in Vegas with Metro for years. And then honestly, like MD, we did all of our autos with MD for the, for the last several years. Um, and then the guys at Western, Pete and Bob, those guys, all those guys collectively are what kept us alive. So yeah, thanks again to those guys. Thank controller too. Just be advised, uh, we're going to have to do emergency landing. We're, uh, just west of Eastern and, uh, 
try to get you a street here. And uh, give us a red 444 and rural medical. He was good red for air two. 444. Get out, Dave. Air two cross street when you can. Air two location when you can. Can you down channel able to get air two's location? Baker 34, it looks like that went down somewhere around northwest of Bonanza and Eastern. Copy Bonanza and Eastern. Charlie, two zero code. Quick five zero code. Twenty four seven. Seven five one. Clear the radio until we find them. Copy channels clear. Thirteen thirty. Keep the red. Keep the guys off the air. Quick forty five or twenty third. Twenty third, just north of Bonanza. Copy twenty third in Bonanza. Control roll medical. Expedite. Copy, they've been advised. Control. Adam 1, we need a perimeter up. We need units at, at Bonanza and 23rd, units at 23rd and Wilson. <coughs> okay, we, we need to uh, start putting up tape for these guys. Badass, man. Badass. We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Bell is proud to sponsor Vertical Helicasts and their vision to hold meaningful mission, safety, and best practice conversations in the helicopter industry. The lessons learned from these conversations will undoubtedly shape the future of both new and veteran helicopter operators. Dude, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. I'm glad we got it down and, and everybody else, I hope, can get uh, something out of it as well. So, um, speaking of training, uh, if you've got a little more time, I'd love to dive into a little bit of SR3 rescue concepts and your training class. Um, but if you don't mind, I'd like to start with actually why it's called SR3 and how you got into it. Yeah, so basically um, it was it was founded by myself and Jason Connell, who is uh, one of my best friends, search and rescue officer in Vegas. And Jason has also since retired. He retired two weeks after I did. We were in the same academy and same platoon in the academy. Uh, just an outstanding human being. And um, basically, we had one of our very closest friends in search and rescue, um, a guy named Dave Van Buskirk, that um, he went up to search and rescue. Um, I think Dave went to SAR a month before I went to air support. And I met Dave on the department um, Early on, we were both firearms instructors, and I met him when we were teaching an academy class, and we ended up kind of in a, in a small group of instructors with a portion of the class from the academy. So I got to know him there, and I was just super impressed with him, man. The guy just carried himself so well. He was so well-spoken and so humble and just just such a nice human being. You know, just unfortunately not the type of people, person that, that you run into on a daily basis, just a genuinely good person that always cared more about, you know, everybody else. And it was interesting because I like you pick up on that right away. I'm like, man, this guy's different, man. He's just, you know, always asking, Hey, how are you doing? Like, how was your day? Like, what was going on? Like, did you hit that traffic? You know, like just always asking about other people and uh, never talking about himself. And that's just not common. You know, like we just tend to not do that. We always talk about ourselves and Dave never did that. Um, so I met him there. And then um, I was really big for years into jujitsu. And I, I had been going to a jujitsu gym for, um, I don't know, year and a half, maybe, 
And uh, Dave comes walking in one day to, to our jujitsu gym, just out of the blue. And I, I think I talked to him about it when I ran into him somewhere and he was like, yeah, I want to come down there and start training, you know? So, so he comes in and I, I remember laughing, telling him like, dude, you're way too good looking to come in here and get your face smashed with the rest of us. You're like, I don't have that problem, but like, you're come in here, your ears are going to get beat to shit. Like you're going to go home with black eyes. Like your wife, Adriana is going to be pissed. You're going to come in with a bloody nose, black eye, you know, but he's like, Oh man, like I'm going to, I'm going to train, you know? So, so that was when we really started spending time together was, was training. And then his ultimate goal at the time was to go to SAR. My ultimate goal was to go to air sport. And we were working on that kind of simultaneously. And, um, Awesome that he transferred up there and then I transferred up right behind him. And then Jason transferred up a couple of years after, um, after we did. And one of the things about Dave that'll tell you about his character was that in, in jujitsu, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal sport. It's, I can't say enough about it, but it's one of those things that like, if you're going to hit the level of achieving a black belt, it's extremely difficult. I mean, if you put the time and effort into it, um, it's definitely attainable. But a lot of people don't achieve that level because of just the commitment and just quite honestly, like the the massive bashing that your ego has to take by getting your ass kicked for years, you know, and then being willing to learn and put aside the things that you, you're not good at to get better in order to achieve the level that you need to, to, you know, be hopefully awarded a black belt someday by somebody. And um, the gym that we went to ran by Sergio Pena in Vegas. Um, was where we trained and Sergio is, I mean, an absolute legend in the jujitsu community and uh, very well respected and somebody that, you know, I mean, he's, he takes jujitsu very seriously and, you know, doesn't give belts out for free. I mean, you, you earn a belt from Sergio, no matter at what level and to earn a black belt from Sergio Pena is amazing. And I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but I, I just, I want people to understand how, how humble Dave was. Well, Dave had been training for, geez, I want to say it had been like eight years. Um, I'd have to go back and look, but you know, kind of the standard is like to get a black belt in less than 10 years in jujitsu is, is it's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. And uh, he had been a brown belt for some time. Um, and I think I just got my brown belt maybe close to it or was like high purple at the time. Um, we were, we were close. So I want to say maybe he, he'd been brown and then I just got my brown, but either way, um, he comes into work one day and uh, I'd been there working day shift and they came in at noon. So he comes in and we're talking and chatting. I'd been around hanging out with him for like an hour. Or so we used to, you know, work out a lot at, uh, at, um, at work whenever we could. And I started getting messages on my phone cause he had been to class that morning and guys start texting me. They're like, dude, DVB, that's what we call them for Dave and Busker. They're like, DVB got his fucking black belt today. That's badass. And like my phone, I'm getting all these messages. I'm like, holy shit. And I'm in the pilot's office and I've just been talking to him for like an hour. So I run down to his office and I was like, did you get your fucking black belt today, dude? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, like Sergio gave me my black belt. And I'm like, dude, you know what a big deal that is? Like, why did you say anything? And he's like, oh, I don't know, man, you know, like, but to Dave, like that was just a personal thing. And that was just a journey for him. And it, he was not the guy that was going to tell everybody that he just got his black belt. I mean, I can't tell you, I mean, anybody that trains understands what a massive achievement that is. And it didn't matter to him to have to tell all of us. I, I don't want to say that it didn't, that he didn't care because he absolutely did. I mean, he absolutely treasured the fact that he earned that black belt and from all people from Sergio Pena, but he was so humble. He didn't feel a need to tell a soul about it. I don't even know wow. if he told his wife. Well. He probably did, but 
I was just blown away. I'm like, holy shit, man. Like, I, I hate to say it, but I could, I'd could, i be like, I just got my fucking black belt. He just gave it to me. I can't believe it. But he didn't he – just, he just was that way. So, anyway, um, you know, we worked alongside for, you know, several years in SAR. And then my – you know, he knew my goal was to become a rescue pilot. And then I was in training to be a rescue pilot um, and working towards all that stuff. And, uh, you know, had gone on a bunch of training flights with him. We used to come back and just laugh all the time and be like, man, I can't believe that, like, you know, you're in the back and I'm flying and, like, you know, going to be flying you on rescues and stuff. It's just crazy. Like, when we think back to so many years ago and our goals were just to get the air support and SAR. So, uh, Dave's call sign was SR3 in 2013. The guys are all numbered in order of seniority, SR1, SR2, SR3. So, he was SR3 at the time. And essentially what happened was there was a rescue um, that – was in the middle of the summertime up at Mount Charleston. There was a single adult hiker that went up and uh, went on a trail that had been closed because there was a whole bunch of fires that had occurred that year. Um, really very bad car, uh, fires up there in um, the whole mountains areas, a whole bunch of it had been closed down. So he basically, unfortunately went hiking on a trail that was closed by himself, got up there, hiked all the way up near the top, um, kind of like the sun went down and he wanted to get down. So he descended off trail a couple thousand feet, Ended up getting ledged out at like the 8,600 foot mark and, and he called. So they go out there in the Huey to get him. And um, Dave was, was the primary rescuer on the call. They flew out there and they actually had briefed um, on the way out. Like, hey, this is, a, you know, it's a, it's a nighttime hoist, but, you know, the, the weather's pretty good. Um, you know, it's going to be kind of a, a clear cut rescue. Like, but, hey, let's not put our guard down type of a thing. So they flew out there and essentially... Um, they lowered Dave down and because the rotor disc was going to be close to the, to the base of the, the kind of the, the rock face that met the ledge this guy was standing on. He was standing on fairly small ledge, but enough room for a couple of people to work and walk around on. But they get in there, they located him and they're like, all right, Hey, we're going to come into a hover. We're going to insert Dave. And normally, you know, they would disconnect from the hook, let the guy do his work. We would come back in and, and, we, you know, come to a new hover, but they said, Hey, because we're going to be so tight on, on the terrain here, let's just insert Dave. We'll direct deploy him. So he'll stay on the hook. Um, back then things were much different. We were, we had a non-locking hoist hook um, that we weren't aware we should have not probably been using overland. And then they were going to use the strop for a mountain rescue, which, you know, again, it just comes down to, you don't know what you don't know, but we, you know, mountain rescue should not be completed with a strop. You know, it, it has its applications over water, but you know, Overland is not one of them. So basically they inserted Dave and they said, we're going to leave him hooked up, strop a victim, double up, extract them both out. Um, so they did that. And when they made the pick, um, essentially his carabiner with this non-locking hoist hook, because the strop went on the hook first and then Dave's carabiner was on um, secondary, you know, both on the same main portion of the hook. But that's how they rigged it on for the insertion. So when... Yeah. Um, there was the slack in the cable where he was working, his carabiner rotated into that position for a dynamic rollout. And we weren't really aware of what that was at the time in the unit, unfortunately. And so essentially what happened was when they made the pick and they put tension on the cable, it held for just a second or two. And then they had briefed to slowly start to drift off the terrain to get some relief from it and then fly out of the canyon um, as they extracted both of them. And unfortunately within a second or two, it popped the gate and he fell a couple hundred feet to his death. And, um, 
as terrible accident. And you know, we, we actually, uh, we have a, a whole presentation that Jason and I did that the department had to approve that we gave at the rescue summit uh, a couple years after it happened. And, um, we've, we're always telling people, Hey, you know, if you want a copy of it, we'll send it to you. If you want us to, to present it to you, like call us, we'll do it for free. You know, it's just for the awareness of it. But yeah, basically it was, it just, it sucked because it was a preventable accident with dynamic rollout. And, um, Dave was literally the best officer operator that that unit has ever seen. And I would stand by that until the day I die. I mean, he legitimately, like he went out and even though it wasn't required, he obtained his paramedic certification. And wow. the guys, yeah, they, they had to get like an intermediate EMT after a certain amount of time, but he was the first guy to go out there and on his own dime, his own time, he became certified as a paramedic because he wanted to be able to push meds for these people that were just really, really hurt. And, you know, if we couldn't get a helicopter in because of the winds or the weather, you know, he wanted to actually give them a higher level of care. And uh, he set a standard. So guys after him, like Jason did it, um, there's a couple other guys in the unit right now that are paramedics because of that. Um, you know, he just like leading by example, but I mean, he would always be out there working and training. And if guys that were newer, you know, were struggling with certain things, he would grab them and say, Hey, let's go out on the climbing tower. Let's rig, you know, up a rope system. Let's go work on this. Let's work on that. You know, really like what he cared the most about was, um, just making everybody around him better. And, you know, by default, it's awesome because the team would get better, which, you know, then everybody, you know, wins together and, and we're more capable yeah. and we succeed, but God, he was just such a, an outstanding, outstanding human being. And, uh, just literally, I mean, he was the best guy and it was crazy because if, you know, if that could happen, it, it really shocked us to the best guy in the unit. Um, you know, it just made us realize like, Holy shit, you know, out of all the guys that this could have happened to on that type of a rescue, you know, we lost Dave. So basically Jason Connell um, was in SAR and just, I mean, it, it just, it tore him up. I mean, Jason, unfortunately was the first guy inserted later on by a second crew to when they found Dave's body and Jason with his Sergeant Gavin Vesp at the time, they had to basically document um, and, and recover him and bring him home. And um, mm. you know, terrible for anybody to have to do that. And he was extremely close to to Dave, um, just like I was. I mean, he worked with him even even more than I got to because they're in the same unit. So, I mean, those guys were super attached at the hip. And Jason really, it just, I mean, it, he had this burning desire inside of him to fix everything. Um, and Metro is an outstanding unit, but it's just there, we had fallen behind the times. And we had stopped sending people to conferences. We had stopped, you know, really looking outside of our own bubble to try to see if there was better ways or better things. And we just, you know, fell into this kind of fatal trap of not getting training. And it was a mentality from what I feel like was just a lot of the much older experienced people and some of our leadership at the time. So that, in my opinion, is what caused that accident to occur. But Jason was just, I mean, relentless where he, he just went on this mission to try to fix everything, you know, that to find what we could do better and to try to implement it. And I mean, the dude was tireless going in and trying to find anybody, you know, in the organization that, you know, within our, our agency and, and SAR and air support that would listen to him. And one of the things that he felt strongly was is that he wanted the story to be told for one, not only to respect Dave, but to prevent anything from happening like that. Again, if people were using the unlock and waste book. So um, we put together a, a, a class, a PowerPoint that was just a factual explanation of the accident. And then the factors that we thought that were involved that caused it. And uh, then we talked about dynamic rollout 
and uh, our staff had to approve it, but we eventually got uh, permission like two years later to present that at the APSA Rescue Summit. And uh, we gave copies of that to anybody that wanted it. We had them put on thumb drives in advance. So that kind of started the whole, um, you know, we thought we should just like go around and, you know, talk about this. So we, we had done that. We were going around and we had some opportunities to speak about it. And then we just realized like, you know, there's only a couple of training companies out there and they're good, you know, they're outstanding, but there's not a lot of options out there for training. And we felt like at the time between Jason and I, and then guys like yourself and, you know, just other guys that we have and in our kind of, you know, circle of, of guys that do this work that have so much experience, we thought, man, we have, a, we feel like we had a lot to offer. And um, so we thought, well, you know, we're going to start a training company and we're going to name it in Dave's honor. So we're going to name it SR3 Rescue Concept. So that's how we ended up being SR3. And, um, you know, it, it meant a lot to us to be able to go out and have an opportunity, especially with Hoist Rescue, to try to teach people to do that as safely and as efficiently as possible. And that's been our mission. You know, we teach more than Hoist Rescue, but a lot of what we teach is Hoist Rescue. And um, it's just awesome because I know that, you know, if I was able to sit down and have a beer with Dave for five minutes, he'd probably laugh his ass off and be like, what are you guys doing? You know, <laughs> you know, but I think he would be, I think he'd be really stoked that, um, you know, it's because of him that, you know, out of, out of the ashes of that tragedy, if you will, um, that, you know, something hopefully kind of beautiful came out of it. And that's really the only way you can look at something like that. Cause it, it friggin' stings, man. When you lose somebody, especially that you're close to. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people listening to this podcast know exactly what I'm talking about, but it hurts, man. It, it cuts deep. So that was the motivation behind it. And uh, we've been rolling strong for several years now. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been really good. Well, you and I have had a good time together. So I, I have appreciated it. And, uh, and I, I'm glad that we can drop some knowledge to people. And the, I mean, the, the slogan of SR3, you don't know what you don't know. And for those that have been out there doing it the same way for the past 20 years, there's a lot of new techniques. There's a lot of new gear. There's a lot of new equipment. There's a lot of new things that you can learn. Don't be afraid to have somebody come in. And, and you know what, Dave, I'll back it up. SR3 is not the only training company out there. And, no. But you can go get good training. You, you just, you can. Get somebody else's opinion. Get an outsider's view of what you're doing. It's, yeah, that's, I, I stand by that. I have always said that there's other options out there. Um, you know, we have direct competitors out there um, that we compete with all the time for work, but you know what? They're all good guys. Those companies are, are outstanding too. And that's, that's all that matters. And we always tell people that like, just get training. It doesn't matter if it's from us or, or one of the other companies, just go out there, man. They're going to give you good training. But the fact that you're, that you're seeking it out and uh, you know, either getting good initial training or good advanced training, or just getting somebody to come out and take a look at your organization and making sure that you haven't fallen into that kind of fatal trap of not having anybody take a look at your procedures and your gear and, you know, everything that you're doing to make sure that there's something, you know, that potentially could save a life. And uh, yeah. I'm always super impressed by an agency that, um, especially if they don't have a lot of funding for something like that, but they understand how important it is to bring somebody in because uh, it is, you know, you just, and th the crappy thing is that that's not, the accident that never happens is not something that's quantifiable or trackable. Right. You know, you don't know how many accidents you've avoided by having good training, but yeah. um, nevertheless, like it's, it's just critical. Well, it's, it's cool. Cause like you and I actually talked about, it. we, we, you and I had a lecture on it and it was the, um, 
gosh, I forget the name of the, the presentation. Practice. Of, we talked the practice, uh, the practice of rescue. That's right. And, you know, they yeah. call it a practice of medicine for a reason, because you're, they practice to save lives every day. And what one medication worked 20 years ago, they no longer use They're using something else. Well, rescue is along the same lines. Just because it was 20 years ago, the shit worked. Doesn't mean you should be doing it today. You know, there are things that are advanced and, and better things out there. And I think one of our, our favorite is using a jungle penetrator in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I mean, shit, our guys no, are doing do that, that, you know, 15, right. 20 years ago. Man. <laughs> the first time I ever got hoisted was sitting on that frigging jungle penetrator. And I think back now, oh. like, dude, I had no idea. It was like, appearance is bliss. But yeah, that's not, I mean, oh. everything has its purpose. And you just, right. it's hard to put your ego aside. and, and think you know like oh you know these folks are going to come in here and tell us how to do our job and that's not how you know any of, of these companies operate you know it's certainly not how we operate right. we're always very humble and respectful yeah. you know and i always tell people that like hey we're a guest in your house you know and we that is not yeah. lost on us we're, we're thankful for the invitation to come into your house yeah. and you know hopefully respectfully um you know give you guys some good training and some recommendations but yeah i mean <laughs> there's a lot of better ways to do things that are safer so, yeah you hit well, it spot you, on you know the greatest yeah, yeah, totally. And and one of the greatest parts about that, like that I've enjoyed um, working with you and stuff is when we go into a place is we're taking feedback from them too. And all of a sudden we're learning something that we can now pass on to the next person. I remember going to a class um, and I, I can't, I can't remember if it was with you or not, but all of a sudden head signals were in it. Like up is yes and down is no. And like, oh, this is great. So yes, stuff like that. No to hell. He says, "Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly." But those are little things yeah. that you you're like, "Oh, this is a great idea." They came up with a great idea. Let me pass it on to others that don't know. So, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's you a know, big part you, of you. You're willing to do that, yeah. Yeah, that's that's another thing that always impresses me with the all the people on our team is that everybody is extremely, extremely experienced in what they do, but they're also extremely humble and they understand that we are always learning. Myself, all of you guys, you. You know, and we're trying to, again, this kind of goes back to the, to like honoring DVB and that was how he ran. And, and, you know, the guys that are on our team, they understand that, like that's expected on SR3 It's like, you, you should be trying to make yourself better all the time. It never stops, you know, and then our organization gets better. And, uh, you know, by default, we're, we're hopefully providing the best service that we can to the people that, that bring us out. But um, yeah, it's huge, man. Like we, we take away every time we go somewhere, every time I go teach a class, I learn stuff from people and it's amazing. It's outstanding. You know, we're all growing together. So yeah, it's a great point. Yep. So thanks. All right. I want to talk uh, just one more quick thing, maybe an additional question on the end, but you've said it twice throughout here and it was, you said, oh shit in the aircraft. So this is something that you and I breathe quite often. There's two things you don't say in the aircraft. It's oh shit, no fuck. All right, don't don't do that. And if you are, it better be followed up with what that oh shit or what that oh fuck is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a valid point. Yeah, because the people that are not directly, uh, you know, experiencing the oh shit like you are, they need a little bit of peace of mind. So, yeah, right away, uh, try not to say it, but you know, obviously if you have to, you need to let everybody know what's going on. So yeah, that's totally. I'm a believer in that. Absolutely. And, and the, the way we can put it to everybody, like to relate to something is when you're in the kitchen and maybe somebody's in the living room and you yell, Oh shit. 
and there's nothing. It just goes silent. And you're like, yeah. is everything you're waiting for a cry, a crash, a break, a something? Can you follow yeah. that up with something? Oh yeah. shit, I just dropped something down the sink. Oh, okay, I can get that. <laughs> yeah. A little more information would be useful. <laughs> yeah, just a little. Just just a little. <laughs> yeah, you're spot on, dude. Oh, it's funny. All right, Dave, last question, and then we're done. I promise. I've had you on a look for a long time. Is all the uh, all the training that you've done, uh, all the flying you've done, an amazing career, the stories, I love them. A piece of advice that you would like to pass on to everybody that just resonates with you, what would you tell everybody out there? You know, honestly, I guess I can't give just one, but I'll give you a little mini package. And we've talked about most love of it. this stuff. but. Be humble, always be humble, um, but you need to never stop trying to improve yourself and push yourself um, and then take all of that and pour into everybody around you, the people you work with, your family, your friends. Um, but in our line of work, the people that have always impressed me the most were the people that have done that, that have tried to make themselves as good as they can be for the better of the team, but that you know, have also tried to pass that knowledge on. I've worked with some people over the years that were incredible pilots. A couple of them that were some of the best pilots I've ever flown with, but they never were really down to share a whole lot of information because their ego was so big that they just didn't want anybody to get close to the level of skill that they had, which to me is the most selfish and irresponsible thing you could ever do, especially when you're, you know, you're working in, an environment where that could save another pilot's life. Uh, so I don't know, to me, that's it. You got to stay humble, but you got to find the stuff that you need to improve on or that you can, you can learn to make yourself better. And then just put that into everybody around you, man. And uh, you honestly, if you do that and you have a good attitude in life and you work hard, like there's literally nothing you can't do, but think about it. Anybody that's like that, you, you want to be around those people. You want to work with those. Those are the people I want to come work for me. You know, yeah. and not everybody's like that, especially this day and age. But that's my advice, yeah. man. Just, yeah, hundred percent, dude. I like it. I like it, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on. I know I had you on for a long time, but these stories are well worth it. I look forward to the next training class we get to do together, and the next beer we get to. Actually, for us, it's a it's a bourbon, a bourbon on the rocks. Maybe nice even neat. You know, what I'm uh, neat, neat for me. I'm okay but with that too. Yeah, okay. but yeah, I I appreciate it, brother. It's uh, it's always an honor to be on this show, um, and I feel like I'm kind of treading among giants because you've had some really, really, really impressive folks on here um, that pale in comparison to anything that I've ever sat here and talked to you about. But uh, yeah, it's humbling to be on here, man, and I can't thank you enough for it. Huge fan of everything that you're doing. So yeah, I look forward to we're gonna get to hang out soon, go do some work, and uh, have that glass of bourbon. So I'm yeah, excited. thanks again, brother. And thanks to everybody listening. Really appreciate you putting up with us and look forward to seeing you soon, brother. Awesome. Me too. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, Please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe 
and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Bell is proud to sponsor Vertical Helicasts and their vision to hold meaningful mission, safety, and best practice conversations in the helicopter industry. The lessons learned from these conversations will undoubtedly shape the future of both new and veteran helicopter operators. Dave, I got to ask you, man, how did you get your Instagram handle name of Ariel Bacon? <laughs> That's a great question. So simply what happened was after the accident uh, that we had with the engine failure, I was sitting at home and uh, hurt and I was, I don't know, it was maybe a week later and I get on the website for the local um, newspaper and I'm reading a story that they did about it. And this was back when they had comments, you know, like the public could get on there and make comments. Right. And yeah. so people were just letting us have it, you know, just all the, all the, you know, cop haters are just on there, just, you know, savagely just putting bad comments on there. And I was getting really fired up and, uh, you know, there's people writing nice stuff too, but a lot of just negative stuff. Cause it was the police, you know? And yeah. so one guy gets on there, um, and you know, we ended up next to a dumpster and one guy's like, Oh, it's too bad. They didn't, you know, land in the dumpster where they belong. And then another guy gets on there and he writes, I guess pigs really can't fly. And I was like, man, like initially I get so mad. Right. And, and my wife, you know, I told her, I was like, man, this, you know, this, this dude wrote, you know, pigs can't fly on the uh, comments or whatever. And, you know, she's laughing. She's like, oh, you're an idiot. I don't know why you'd even read those comments. Yeah. All right. That's to be fair. That's a good point. Um, but anyway, you know, we eventually I kind of laughed about it. I'm like, yeah, whatever it's, you know, people are going to say what people are going to say, but later on, you know, um, with social media, with my Instagram handle, you know, a couple of the guys on the team were just giving me static because, it, you know, like I use social media, but it's not like, you know, a huge part of my life. So I had some lame, whatever initials or something for my Instagram handle. And uh, they started giving me a lot of static over it. Like you got to come up with something cool and unique or original. And I'm not super creative in that regard. So I was thinking about it and then I don't know why, but for some reason that dude and whatever his, you know, his comment about not being able to fly popped into mind. And I'm like, Hmm, I'm going to embrace what this dude wrote. And I'm going to, I'm going to literally call myself Ariel Bacon, the flying pig. And, uh, it's stuck. So, yeah, so now, I mean, you know, your, your buddy, Joey painted an amazing flying pig on the back of my helmet at HAI last year, did that like in one sitting and uh, we got some cool pictures and video of it and it's on the back of my helmet now. And yeah, awesome. I feel like that's, that's the way to handle that situation. You know, when uh, somebody, somebody comes after you with a little bit of hate like that, you just embrace it and you use it, you know, you don't let it bother you. So that's the story of Ariel Bacon. <laughs>